there will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Please be seated. Medication. We are we are at that age where we live on pele and prele, pele and prele. Honorable members, the only item on today's order paper is questions addressed to the Deputy President. There are four supplementary questions on each question. Parties have given an indication of which questions their members wish to pose a supplementary question. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the sitting through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized by the presiding officer. In allocating opportunities for supplementary questions, the principle of fairness, amongst other things, has been applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through the virtual platform is unable to do so through technological difficulties, the party whip or duty on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. When all supplementary questions have been answered by the deputy president, we will proceed to the next question on the order paper. Members asking supplementary questions or raising points of order may remain seated when doing so. The first question has been asked by the Honorable N.V. Mende to the Deputy President. The Honorable, the Deputy President. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, uh, Honorable Speaker. Government's policy options and positions have not reached the point where privatization is seen as an answer to providing better solutions to the current problems that are facing ESCOM. <clears throat> Our current choices is to make ESCOM a more efficient and more effective energy generation and transmission public entity with all the necessary capabilities to ensure the security and consistency of energy supply in the interest of our economy and human development in general. 
Honorable Speaker, it will be inaccurate to characterize the current organizational transformation happening within ESCO as privatization or implied intention to facilitate it. This is not the case. Instead, the utility is currently in an advanced stage of the process of unbundling, which will result in the transformation of the electricity sector in order to achieve long-term energy security for our country. On several occasions, we have, we have addressed the specifics of this plan with this parliament in our capacities government. However, we do empathize with uh, your sentiments, given the ongoing challenges of load shedding that the country is once again confronted with. We have stated previously that in the main unanticipated breakdowns of our aging fleet and power plants contributes to load shedding. Needless to say, we are focusing on improving maintenance and repairs to ensure increased energy availability. The issue of plant maintenance and performance have nothing to do with privatization or public ownership of the utility. The unbundling or legal separation of ESCOM into three subsidiary businesses, namely generation, transmission, and distribution, is designed to enable ESCOM to manage and focus, improve efficiency, create greater transparency and around performance, and provide greater protection against corruption and rent seeking. In order to realize the potential of an independent transmission system and market operator, the primary purpose of unbundling is to separate the generation and transmission of electricity from one another. Given this information, the creation of a new transmission entity is the most important step in ESCOM unbundling process. ESCOM holding will have complete ownership of the new transmission entity when it has been established. Its primary responsibility will include acting as an independent broker in the electricity market, fostering capital investment within the industry, and catalyzing energy efficiency and cost sustainability. It is to be envisaged that the transmission entity will have supply agreements directly with consumers, including ESCOM distribution, municipalities, the Southern African power pool, and large power users. The utilities on track to split its generation and distribution businesses by the end of 2022, as the president has outlined in the National Energy Plan. This is in an effort to improve its operational and financial performance. This will also fulfill the needs of the National Energy Plan to drive the economy 
stimulate reindustrialization efforts and ensure security of electricity supply to households. Therefore, privatizing ESCOM is not the answer. We should continue to focus on getting ESCOM back into optimal performance by ensuring that the entity has sound governance structure in place and that the required skills levels are met at the power plant level. Honorable Speaker, we should take this opportunity to reassure every South African that will continue to work hard to ensure that they have access to reliable electricity so that they can realize their needs and the developmental hopes and dreams that we have set ourselves as a, as a nation. Thank you very much. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable N. V. Mende. Thank you very much, uh, Speaker. I will take the question on behalf of Honorable Mende. Uh, Deputy President, we are going to save this recording because we can assure you that the plan by the Minister of Public Enterprise is to privatize ESCO. So in the not so distant future, we'll be re replaying the recordings. But anyway, uh, GP, the challenges facing Kusile Power Station are deliberate and man-made. If we can solve Kusile and Midubi and get all the units online, we'll not have blackout challenges. As you speak now, DP, ESCOM is implementing stage six, but they call it stage three and four. When SCOPA went on oversight, it was made clear that we must build a mine that feeds directly into Kusile instead of all those 800 coal trucks polluting the area. Why are we not building a mine to feed Kusile to stop the sabotage of ESCOM? Thank you, Deputy uh, Speaker. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, thank you, Honorable Member. Well, I agree with you that uh, bringing Gusile and Budipi online will ease our problems. And we are therefore attending to the issues of designs and all the challenges that are faced by Gusile and Budipi. I'm happy that uh, we're on course to bring Mudupi into operation. And lastly, Gusile will follow. That is just but one step in the direction of uh, improving our generation capacity. But of course, we'll follow the plan as outlined by the president in trying to stabilize our generation capacity. Thank you very much. The second supplementary. Uh, uh, speaker, speaker, my apologies. The, the, no, no. DP, the question was, no. why are we not building the mine? No, 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 speaker. He has not you answered the, the mind. You did I was not raise a point of order. Will you please raise a point of order if you want to raise a point of order? Okay, on a point of order, Speaker. Yes, Honorable Mawutwe. Yes, Speaker. No, no, no. I wanted to remind DP that the, the question was why are they not building that the mind? That is mine? not a point of order, Honorable Mawutwe. But allow him to respond, Speaker. Why do you respond on his behalf? Will you please remove Honorable Mawutwe? From no, the no, system. No, Honorable Mawutwe, I am now throwing you out of the system. Oh. The hmm. second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable K.E. Magata. Thank you, Speaker. 
Deputy President, given the repeated narrative, a wrong narrative, by the way, by some opposition parties that the manner in which the restructuring of ESCOM is occurring appears to be privatization of the state utility. Why is the restructuring of ESCOM more important than the so-called privatization? And how will the challenges faced by ESCOM be resolved through restructuring without privatization as the current state ownership continues? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Makakla. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. Well, like we've said, privatization is not on the cards. So let's rule that one out. We are dealing with the, the challenges that are faced with ESCOM. So in our take, the unbundling of ESCOM or the separation of ESCOM into three entities will benefit the public entity in three ways. Firstly, it will improve efficiency. And secondly, it will allow ESCOM to distribute the risk, the debt, so that it's not only concentrated into generation, but it is distributed also into transmission and uh, a distribution. Now, thirdly, we are trying very hard to ensure that the amount of skills that are required in the three different entities should be uh, sought out in the public, allow the transmission uh, entity to improve the skills capacity within the transmission, but allow also a dedicated focus into the three entities, that is transmission and distribution, which in our case, distribution, it's a major problem as we speak, because a large amount of our energy get lost at the distribution point. Thank you very much. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable NLS Kwangwa. Honorable Kwangwa. Okay, I then proceed to the last supplementary question, which will be asked by the Honorable S. Jafta. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Uh, Deputy President, the, op the proponents of ESCOM's privatization argue that it brings some fiscal relief and is able to cut government's expenditure and boost government's revenue, including converting government's debt to equity and helping government from pressures of borrowing-related austerity measures. Is government weighing all these options, including the negative spin-offs of privatization, such as effects on skewing income distribution in the direction of greater 
inequality. Thank you. I, I thank you, Honorable Jafta. Thank you very the much. Honorable Chair. Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. Yes, we have weighed all these options and we have finally came to a conclusion where we say, no, privatization is not an option because electricity is a public good. It should be available, available to all the masses of our people. Rich, rich and poor. So, order. government is the only order. Government is the only guarantee that will make it a point that our people get electricity. You are not on the floor, honourable member. There, please proceed, government, Mr. President. Government will remain the only guarantee that will protect the poor and ensure that everyone, irregardless of social standing in community, gets this service. Thank you very much. Thank you. Question number 14 has been asked by the Honorable M.G. Mashaule to the Deputy President. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker, once more. The problem of illegal mining has grown to the point where it is a major source of concern, not only for the government, but also for the mining industry and the communities that are located close to these illegal mining operations. At its most recent cabinet, Lekhutla, which was held uh, a few days back, the executive was given an update by the Justice, Crime and Prevention Security Cluster on the measures that are being taken to uh, implemented to combat acts of criminality and social ills in areas located in close uh, proximity to the illegal mining operations. At the Lekhotla, we agreed that illegal mining not only has a detrimental effect on the economy, and the way people make a living. But it also puts the safety of the environment and the national security of the country in jeopardy. On the 11th of August, 2022, at a briefing by the ministers of police, home affairs, mineral resources, and energy, the NCOP was appraised that a special task team was established by the South African Police Service in 2019 to tackle the phenomenon of illegal mining. To date, the police have confirmed the arrest of more than 4,675 illegal miners in this regard. Furthermore, an existing multidisciplinary economic infrastructure task team of various specialized units of SAPS in partnership with the private security and private business. It's working tirelessly in preventing and combating economic and critical infrastructure related crimes, including illicit mining. A similar unit has been launched in KZN on the 13th of June, 2022 
which also contribute towards eliminating extortions at economic infrastructure sites. The Justice Prevention and Security Cluster has also developed a strategy that will focus on combating activities in both formal and informal settlements. In addition to that, this strategy is built upon five pillars that include, among others, tighter intelligence gathering and coordination, intensification of police visibility mechanisms, tighten mechanisms aimed at disruption of organized and stubborn crime, enhanced prosecutorial guided investigation, stepping up our crime prevention awareness campaigns and swiftly acting on crime prevention tips. In the end, a communication effort is being implemented, which includes awareness campaigns and tips on how to prevent crime, in addition to requests for assistance in capturing wanted suspects. All of these measures will be largely based on working together with members of the executive councils in provinces, together with the South African police uh, services, cooperating together with communities and creating community forums. This will serve as a foundation for all these measures to take root. In addition, the JCPS cluster in collaboration with government communication and information service will reestablish improved communication methods as well as engagement with community structures in the form of community meetings in order to raise educational awareness regarding the fight against illegal mining. We are confident that the approach has been out, that has been outlined will ensure that all of us live in environments that are conducive to free and harmonious economic activity, which will ultimately result in a reduction of poverty, unemployment, and inequality. Like I've said, already police have reported that they've arrested successfully more than 4,675 illegal miners. They've also closed 135 mining holes and the process of closing decommissioning mines is an ongoing process. Investment in mining infrastructure projects that are impactful resilient and sustainable, stands out as the most effective weapon to fight economic, low economic growth. To ensure the continued health of our economy, it is essential that we tackle measures to preserve not only our mining infrastructure, but also any other type of infrastructure. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable M.G. Mashaule. Thank you very much, uh, Speaker. And thank you very much, Deputy President, for the comprehensive uh, response. One part of the follow-up question has been uh, answered 
But I want to ask the Deputy President that uh, what are other interventions of government which are aimed at pulling out people out of illegal mining to bring them within the regulatory framework to enable job creation as well as supporting informal trade and other local economic activities. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. One way that we're looking at as government, especially in the mining sector, is that of uh, um, beneficiation of our mineral resources that can take out these children that are illegally taking a risk with their life in trying to go and find some remnants of these minerals. Now, if these young kids can be redirected into processes of beneficiations of this mineral, that can also save them and create the much needed jobs. But of course, we need to also to close the tap because for these children to be actively involved in illegal mining. That means there's a buyer somewhere. So we need to deal with that problem so that we discontinue this uh, very unsafe process of mining. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. President. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Esquahube. Um, Honorable Deputy I'll, President. I'll be taking the question. Sorry. No, I'll be taking the question. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, Order. Are you, are you done? Order. Honorable <laughs> Member. Yes. Thanks, Speaker. Minister, given the sentiment that you've made that somewhere there is a buyer and you need to close the market, and identifying all the risks that illegal mining activities pose and also the increased lack of safety. What is government then going to do to stop artisanal miners from selling their products on the market to criminal syndicates? Because that is where the problem lies. Thanks. Thank you, the Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. First of all, we should ensure that all illegal miners are arrested. And therefore, in that way, you'll cut the chain. Uh, let's not allow any illegal mining to happen because this is a crime in the country. Why are we saying this is a crime? Because these are mining uh, enterprises that have been left they are not safe in their nature. People can die there. So we cannot legalize in any way the illegal mining on those, and I mean, left uh, those mining mines that are left by mining companies. So they need to be closed down, rehabilitated, and probably put a good new use of the, of the land probably turn the land into uh, agricultural purposes. But for the 
for the mining uh, sector itself, I think we need to protect it so that illicit mining flows. Government must fight this because it's happening all over the world. And in our case, it's at an infant stage. We must deal with it before it's becoming an endemic problem. So as government, with all the structures that we've put in place, we're putting all our efforts to nip this in the bud so that we stop it. <clears throat> it's important that we stop it because we are stopping the, the, the people that are stealing our, our revenue. These minerals that are stolen, they should give us revenue. And that revenue should be utilized to develop our country. So we must be strong, have institutions that will deal with this illegal practices so that we can have a strong basis for economic growth and sectors that are protected. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The third supplementary question will be asked by a member from the EFF on behalf Honorable, of Honorable OMC Maudwe. Yeah, I'll take it, Speaker, because you throw her yeah, illegally. You, so. Yeah, Deputy President, the root problem of illegal mining lies in the fact that mining companies that previously operated at this site have neglected the site without putting in place rehabilitation and security measures. Secondly, the minerals that these Zamazamas start to find their way into the mainstream market somehow. Will the government consider punitive measures against mining companies that neglected mining sites without putting in place security and rehabilitation measures? Secondly, what has been done to get a full understanding of the entire value chain of this illegal mining sector? Who are the players involved and why has the state not arrested them? The last one, why are you not nationalizing mines in South Africa in order for the black people to have access to the mines? Thank you, Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Mukalipi, the Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. Because mining in the country is a very important sector, that it's almost the backbone of our economy. It is important to protect it. To protect it from very unscrupulous mining companies that will come and mine and leave the mining holes as they are. So you correct honorable member, we are going to enforce that when you are done with mining, you must rehabilitate the, the soil and leave it at a stage where it is almost usable again in terms of agriculture. So that's one, we're going to enforce that because mining is going to be a sector that will be with us for, for, for ages. So it's important to treat the environment in a manner that our children will find it in a usable state. So we're going to do that. But of course, in order to, to derive the benefits 
as government, as the state, from this sector, for us to tax mining companies, we need to ensure that we protect and prevent illicit flows out of this sector. So it will be incorrect to allow illegal miners to take whatever minerals, irregardless of the amount of minerals, out of the country in a manner that is not within our law. So we're going to combat that. That is why we're talking of the structures that we're talking about. They will be there. We'll be working together with communities. So we request our communities to work with government uh, to ensure that we deal with this. It's, it's now becoming a pandemic. Every day you learn about people being killed in this illegal activity. So government is going to stamp its authority and get this thing right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable B.N. Yes. Heron. Yes. yes, is it a point of order? Uh, the Deputy President didn't answer the question about nationalization. That is not, it's not a point of order. Take the, your seat, please. It's, will you please take your seat? Please take your seat. Will you please take your seat? But the speaker today, what's wrong? Point of order, yes. Chair, I'm raising point of order in line with section. Am I protected? Yes, you are protected. I'm I'm, members, please I'm allow raise, him to speak. I'm raising point of order in uh, accordance with section 42, subsection 3 of the constitution, which says uh, when the executive members of and the deputy president and president come to parliament, they must give us a picture which enable us to do oversight and to uh, scrutinize their work. So the question was, what is he going to do? Is he going to nationalize the mines or not? We Honorable want the answer member, on that. Honorable member, okay, please take your seat. The Deputy President has responded to, your, to the question which was raised. You may be uncomfortable with the response he is given, but he has responded to the question, Honorable Member. Honorable Khatebe. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. I, I'm rising on Rule 142.7. Yes. That rule is very clear that when a supplementary question is asked, mm -hmm. only one question must be asked. So the, the deputy president is not obliged to answer all the questions. If he has only answered one out of the many which they, they fill it in, it's still in line, it's correct. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Khatebe. Honorable members, we now proceed. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable B.N. Heron. Honorable Heron. Okay. Honorable Heron, you are not here. We therefore proceed to the next question. Question number 15. Question number 15 has been asked by the Honorable MGE Hendricks to the Deputy President. 
The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, thank you, Honorable Speaker. We share the members' concern that street vendors in Gatesville, Atlone, and other districts of Cape Town have been in constant conflict with the law enforcement officials over their economic activities and efforts to make honest livelihoods for an extended period of time. While municipalities are responsible for trading regulations, markets, streets, trading and beach ordinances in their areas, it is important, Honorable Speaker, to ensure that these rules are admit, administered with the highest regard for the dignity and human rights of everyone, including our hawkers. There is no doubt that government as a whole has a responsibility to assist the informal sector, particularly enterprises of hawkers in Athlone and elsewhere in the country. Part of our red tape reduction efforts focuses on the elimination of these erroneous rules and artificial participation barriers, including ease of registration and access to permits. For instance, here in Atlone, we advise that informal trade traders are required to register on the internet portal platform and obtain permits approvals while the reality is that many of these poor traders have no access to internet and connectivity infrastructure. Consequently, it takes time to allocate trading base and uh, for, for hawkers, while these delays are not factored when the municipality enforces its bylaws. We said in the NCOP earlier this month that the majority of our cities and towns struggles to deliver the key infrastructure and services required to maintain local businesses and attract the necessary investments for inclusive economic development and job creation. Therefore, expediting the application process and for permits and licenses and reducing prohibition of informal businesses, including through changes to zoning and land use regulations is not only a matter of convenience, it is a key intervention for stimulating development. We're encouraged by the efforts of the Department of Small Business and Development to improve the situation through consultation with various stakeholders in the sector towards finding innovative, inclusive, and sustainable solutions that will make our informal economy thrive. We advise that the Minister of Small Business Development held stakeholder engagement in the Western Cape on the 20th to the 22nd of April, 2022, with regard to the specific challenges experienced by the street workers in Gatesville, we will ensure that the Department of Small Business Development convene an engagement with the city of Cape Town to find lasting solutions to the plight of the street workers. We believe that honorable members will agree with us that informal economy 
continues to assist historically disadvantaged individuals and communities to escape from poverty, generate an income, and establish their own businesses. In this regard, we'll always encourage municipalities to support policies that enable their residents to participate in efforts for sustainable local economic development. Our objective as government is to create resilient, sustainable, and a cohesive communities in which municipalities serve as a thriving economic and cultural hubs. Government through the Department of Small Businesses Development has partnered with the South African Local Government Association and municipalities to normalize the deteriorating conditions of trading spaces in, sever in several metropolitan municipalities, including Cape Town. In addition, we propose that educational dialogues be held between communities, street vendors, law enforcement officials, as an alternative to what has been seen as excessive use of force on the side of authorities. We also urge development assistance, ongoing training, empowerment programs, most critically, the protection and support of informal traders. Even such initiatives may not be exhaustive, but they do offer a glimmer of hope towards a workable social compact in responding to the concerns of these communities. In conclusion, we do not condone any form of violence against law-abiding persons who are working hard to provide for themselves and their families. Thank you very much. I thank you, Deputy President. The second supplementary question, the first will be asked by the Honorable MGE Hendricks. Honorable Hendricks? Uh, Deputy President, do you support Aljamaa's call for permits for the poor to trade to be replaced rather by registration certificates and that this be issued by CEDA of the Department of Small Business as we cannot wait until the 7th Parliament for the Business Act to be amended. A position Aljamaa voted against in the recent meeting of the Portfolio Committee on Small Business, a key deliverable of government business after the State of the Nation address is to remove red tape to enable the poorest of the poor uh, to put the bread on the table. The President's promise with this anti-poor initiative, which you lead, Deputy President, as you said, was met in the city of Cape Town, where the harshest accent only seen in the worst days of apartheid. Aljamaa counts on your support to replace permits with registration certificates. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable <laughs> Deputy President. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Uh, thanks for the follow-up question. We have advised, Honorable Member, that uh, the Minister of Small Business would uh, visit Cape Town 
and enter into a dialogue so that we find an amicable way of resolving this problem. So I think we should allow it to take that course. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable B.M. Hatebe. Thank you so much, um, Honorable Speaker, and thank you, Honorable Deputy President, for the extensive and detailed response. Uh, DP, in a consultation process with various stakeholders by the Department of Small Business towards finding innovative, inclusive, and sustainable solutions, will the Deputy President be amenable in advising the Department to consider a quota system or placing restriction on the number of foreign nationals allowed to occupy these trading spaces as street vendors in order to give preference to locals when it comes to issuing of permits and licenses, given the fact that Majority of these people are the working class and the poor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy thank President. You. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. I take it these are two parallel processes that we're talking about. Um, the question is not about... Order. Order. Question. Continue, Deputy President. The question is not about foreign nationals. The question is about our hawkers that are frustrated in getting the necessary assistance from uh, municipalities. So we are saying that we must find a way that will fast track this process and ensure that these hawkers are treated as human beings because these are not criminals. These are people who are trying to make a living. Well, the matter of foreign nationals, it's a matter that is processed differently. And so we cannot delve into that one now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. A third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable ALA Abrams. Thank you, Speaker. Bringing this question back to the national government competencies, on the homepage of the State of the Nation website, and I quote, poverty eradication will be achieved by expanding employment opportunities, but also by making life more affordable for low-income households. The DA proposed five immediate steps for government that government can implement to make life more affordable for every South African battling to put food on the table. For example, cut tax and levies on fuel, scrap that on food items commonly purchased by poor households, review and reduce import tariffs on these food. Our objective is the same, make life more affordable. As the leader of government business, will he support the DA's proposal? And if not, what is the ANC's immediate plan to make South Africans' lives more affordable as per your anti-poverty strategy? And Honorable Deputy and President, you, time speaker, up. I've printed some um, information for the Honorable Hendricks on informal trading, which I'll give to him afterwards. Thank you very Thank much. You. The Honourable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. I will reiterate our standpoint as the ruling party that uh, will support small businesses. That is why in a, in a way of restructuring ourselves, we've created a ministry that will look into the affairs of small enterprises. Imagine 
these hawkers that starts selling a few things, one day they become a big business. It depends on the support that we give to this small hawker at the corner of a, a certain street, supported by the municipality, uh, given the necessary permits, so that these people can find a living. It's not all of us that can create employment, but some people to employ themselves. So as, as government, we should find a way of supporting these people rather than removing them forcefully. Because they are not there to steal. They are there to make a living. They are there to start a small business. Now, our intention as government, any economy in the world is supported by small business. So we must support these small businesses. Let's find a way of making it easy for them to register their small businesses. Let's allocate spaces for them to trade, period. Thank you. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable A.M. Sheikh Imam. Uh, thank you, Honorable Speaker. Deputy President, I must agree with you because I recently met somebody who went door-to-door -door selling sweets. Today, he employs thousands of people, one of the biggest confectionery manufacturers in the country. On, on, on the issue on hand, uh, Deputy President, it's not limited to challenges people are facing in the city of Cape Town. I can assure you the city of Itegwini is no better. Kauteng is no better. I have seen police confiscate goods, even perishables, you know, not considering the plight of these people. And I welcome, your, you've alluded to that there's been some level of intervention. I just believe that there needs to be more intervention from a your higher question, level so that we be able Imam, to, to do it. Would you consider accelerating the process of intervention from a higher level so that we'd be able to deal with the challenges that they face in informal trading throughout the country? Thank you. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. I think in support of what the Minister of Small Business will be doing on this matter, we'll also try our best to uh, take a discussion with the Premier uh, of the Western Cape so that we can discuss this matter and find a way, an amicable way of assisting uh, the province so that finally we get these small uh, hawkers on the ground getting assisted. So definitely we are taking this matter serious because we're operating in an environment where our economy is down. We should do everything in our power to try and uh, put a number of enablers that will enable this economy once more to be put on a path that to grow again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The next question, question number 16, has been asked by the Honorable MME Chape to the Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, once again, Honorable Speaker. The highlights of the summit 
must be understood in the context of an ongoing program of land reform in South Africa, whose aim is to ensure equitable access to land by all South Africans as stated in our constitution, in particular, chapter two, section 25. We're all aware that the impact of land disposition and negative effects of tenure systems that were prevalent amongst the indigenous communities by introducing new notions of land ownership and tenure systems. Yeah. Customary land tenure therefore did not evolve, nor was codified. Land in these communities was held by the state as the custodian. Economic and social development in these areas have been lagging behind as a result of financial institutions being hesitant to invest in these areas as they deem communal land to be insecure. Tenure security has been addressed through a plethora of legislations, which in itself has had limitations. In this regard, the Presidential Panel on Land and Agriculture following the investigation and analysis of what has happened, what must be done since the advent of democracy, recommended that government must develop a land tenure system that recognizes diverse tenure systems and rights. The panel further recommended that certain principles that must underpin this tenure reform that moves towards tenure rights and away from permits to occupy so that the right to land is legally enforceable. Furthermore, the tenure reform must build a unitary non-racial system of land rights for all South Africans with a system of land registration, support and administration which accommodates flexible and diverse systems of land rights within a unitary framework, among others. The Land Administration and Tenure Summit, held in May this year, therefore was a culmination of years of work by South Africans to resolve land tenure matters, with a specific focus on communal land under the jurisdiction of traditional leaders. The summit was convened in accordance with the 2017 traditional and coercion leadership in Daba resolutions and the recommendations provided by the Presidential Advisory Panel on Land Reform and Agriculture to the Interministerial Committee on Land Reform and Agriculture. The summit was centered around three thematic areas. That is land administration and land tenure reform, special planning and land use management in communal areas, COI and SEN related matters. The summit outcomes highlighted a wide range of policy proposals and recommendations for implementation to improve communal land administration and tenure. Among other key issues, the summit highlighted the following. Ensuring development of land tenure legislation 
that will define the different types of tenure systems, transfer of ownership of communal land held in trust by the state to communities through recognized traditional councils, including the provisions of critical development support, strengthening and capacitating land governance and administration structures, repositioning special planning legislation and processes to allow meaningful participation of traditional leadership institutions at all levels, as well as addressing all issues affecting the Khoi and the Sen communities. The IMC on land reform and agriculture is currently in the process of de developing responses and action plans to the summit resolutions for presentation to cabinet. The IMC has also delegated the team of deputy ministers, deputy minister of agriculture, land reform and rural development, deputy minister of traditional affairs, justice and correctional development, forest, fisheries and environment, as well as deputy minister of human settlement to continue engaging with traditional leaders to work out modalities on taking these resolutions forward. Where consensus has not been fully reached, further consultation will continue to solicit additional inputs. This is done in order to ensure deeper understanding of the different perspectives that are there. As part of our broader land reform program, we'll continue to partner with traditional leaders to ensure that land administration and tenure systems are consistent with culture, heritage, and development aspirations of traditional communities. The formal recordal and administration of land rights for traditional communities is integral to effective land and tenure reforms. In order to guarantee communities continued ownership of their property, the IMC on land reform and agriculture has made the development of a legislative framework for the transfer of the land held in trust by the state and its administration a high priority. The provision of land rights the transfer of ownership from the state to the rightful owners, agriculture and infrastructure development, improved and inclusive land use management, targeted support to rural residents will continue to be our goals in order to achieve the development and sustainability of our rural communities. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable M.M.E. Tlape. Thanks, uh, Honorable Speaker. Thanks for the elaborative response. Deputy President, at the center of uh, land administration are communal property associations, your CPAs, whose performance is the, in the many parts of the country have adversely affected the objectives of land reform particularly in areas of land, communal land management. What is the thinking of Deputy President with regard to CPAs as vehicles of land restitution program 
considering the many challenges around these entities. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. You correct, Honorable Member. The matter was raised in the summit because of the continued infighting between CPA members. Uh, it was discussed, and uh, the request was that this policy must change, and probably we need to put develop a new legislative framework that will govern CPAs. And therefore, we took it as an IMC. Currently, as we're speaking, the policy proposals that we're proposing are out there for public comments. The legislative framework that we are proposing, it's out there for public comments in an effort to try and bring order in this uh, CPAs. Why this is a concern? Because hectares and hectares of land have been transferred to people, but these people continuously, on a continuous basis, they are fighting. And this land is lying fallow, it's not productive, but this is an asset for the country that should add to our food basket. So we are trying very hard to try and resolve this so that probably members of the CPA can have an option. The land can be divided to the individual participants rather than to club them together as a group. If you want out, you can get your one hectare land so that you can be productive. But these are some of the policy options that we're putting out there for public comments. Thank you very much. I thank you, Deputy President. <clears throat> the second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable T.M. Babana. Babama. Okay, Babama. Deputy President, the pre-written document at the land summit which you attended demonstrated clearly that the inputs were predominantly coming from the traditional leaders and the interministerial committee. There is a contention that the voices of women and other residents of rural land were stifled at the conference and the voices of traditional leaders were prioritized. Now, since it is clear that your ANC deputy presidency is coming to an end in 2024, how do you plan to leave order, honorable members? Order, honorable members, please. Since it is clear that your ANC deputy presidency is coming to an end in 2024, how do you plan? Order, man. Order. Honorable member. Order. Order. Quentin Janina. Papa, my honorable member, Papa, ma. Honorable member. Okay, Utetindongazazio, but will you please be in order? Order. 
Bye, man. Sanuzo Zenzilantuza. Continue. How do you plan to leave a good legacy by ensuring that the voices of rural women are heard? Thank you very much, honorable member. Now, honorable I Thank you, thank you, Honourable Speaker. Uh, well, the summit was oversubscribed. No, man. Honourable members, please proceed, Honourable Deputy President. Honourable Speaker, I'm saying the, the summit was oversubscribed. We had to allow people to come in, people that were not invited. Those were communities that are living in these traditional areas. And in the main, in those people that came are women. So the voice of women was heard in the, in the, in the summit. And to a point where traditional leaders threatened to leave the summit because they felt they were insulted. I'm just trying I to say that uh, it was not easy for traditional leaders in that summit because traditional communities felt that some, they cannot put their land into the hands of traditional leaders because they don't trust. They don't, these are people that will sell the land. Now, the voice of women was part of those. But this is an effort to try to find the best way of bringing back this land to the rightful owners so that they can use this land for their development. Now, this land, as we speak, is lying fallow. We can till the land, we can manage the land better, Currently, this land is being invaded left and right. There, there's no order in this land. So it is important that we legislate, but members of parliament should note that it's not going to be uh, an easy process. We might have three or four policy options depending on the community, the traditional community. In some traditional communities, they don't have a problem with their traditional leader or their king. In other communities, they might have a different option. So, instead, in a certain area, the king might take control on behalf of the people. In other areas, the traditional council can take control on behalf of the people. In other areas, the community itself will take control of its own land. So different options will emerge and will be legislated that suits the needs of the different communities. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable N. Singh. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable Deputy President, about two-thirds of the developing world's three billion rural people 
live in about 475 million small farm households working on land plots smaller than two hectares. Many are poor and food insecure and have limited access to markets and services. Their choices are constrained, but they farm their land and produce food for a substantial portion of the world's population. In many developing countries, Deputy President, small-scale agriculture is better placed to initiate growth. Now, the success of this government will have to have reliable records, provide financial support, and have an integrated approach. Will you promote in cabinet, Honorable Deputy President, an idea that local governments should be tasked with the responsibility of developing small-scale farmers and that funds be transferred to them because they are closest to the people on the ground? Thank you. I thank you, Honorable Member, the Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. I think the intention of this land summit and the discussions that were there is to ensure finally that land is transferred to the rightful owners. For residents and for agricultural purposes. And therefore, if we create structures like your uh, community boards that would look after the land on behalf of the community, if we have these traditional councils, uh, that will look after the land on behalf of the community. Finally, the intention of government is to find a way of supporting small-scale farmers in this communal land to be supported so that they can till this land and uh, make a living. But beyond, they can sell their produce to the markets. Yes, the complaint was that uh, Yes, we are talking about this 13% of land, which is the communal land. Why are you saying about the 87% of land that was taken? And we are saying our land reform program, there are four instruments. It's the very same communal land that we're looking at. We're also looking at restitution, an attempt that was put before this parliament to try and fast-tracking uh, fast this process of getting land back to the people who are dispossessed. That process of expropriation without compensation could not pass the threshold of our law. You, you know that yourself. But that process is not aborted because uh, there is an expropriation bill that is before you that is trying to uh, make it a point that finally we, we speed up the process of uh, getting land to the people. Now, Kenya, in all our workings, we are trying very hard to support our people who have security of tenure. We have released almost 14,000 hectares of land in all our urban metro municipalities. This land, we have made it available for human settlement so that people can have 
title there. Yes, we're all supporting uh, efforts of taking land back to the people. You'll be aware that the president announced that we are going to give our people 700,000 hectares of land and that process is complete. And in the main, those people are women and young people. Currently, we're looking at ways and means of supporting them to be productive. So we're well on course. This time we're focusing on the communal land. We need to put order on that land so that this land can be productive and people should have a gainful uh, economic activity around their own properties. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable T. Briet. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Honorable Deputy President, I'm worried about more action plans and more resolutions. On the 22nd of August 2019, during the presidential Q&A session after the presidential advisory panel on land reform and agriculture's report um, was released, I asked the president whether he would take the supplementary report into consideration, seeing as the report ignored targets set out by the NDP for the declining number of commercial farmers and states past failures with regard to land reform. To date, this report has, however, not been taken into account, nor the above mentioned, and we have not seen an improvement in our rural communities um, and economies. What will you do to ensure that this summit is not just another talk shop of ideas that will end up failing the people in our rural communities as the advisory panel did? I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, Honorable Member. Like we've said, we're now finalizing all the recommendations and resolutions from the summit. Uh, we'll take them before the president. Of course, the owners of this land are up in arms. They want finality on this matter. So there's no reason to delay on our side. We're going to process this matter. But of course, in the process, we might look at developing legislative framework that will support this process. But rest assured, this time around, this process will be pushed up to finality. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The next question is question number 17 and has been asked by the Honorable T.N. Mutle to the Deputy President. The Honorable, the Deputy President. Thank you uh, once more, Honorable Speaker. Since the establishment of the presidential task team on the military veterans by the president, uh, His Excellency Cyril Ramaphosa in 2020, we've met with all military veterans associations that are registered with the Department of Military Veterans in a series of meetings. We've also met with a contingent of military veterans that marched to the Union buildings on November 2020 under the banner of Liberation Struggle War Veterans, not once, many times. Following an in-depth discussion that we held, it became apparent that uh, in order for the task team to get to the bottom of the nature and extent of the various challenges that confronts military veterans on an ongoing basis, 
we need to conduct further engagement with military veterans at provincial level and to focus on mitigating specific and localized challenges that military veterans are facing on a daily basis. To this end, the presidential task team has already visited and engaged with military veterans in six provinces, namely Gauteng, Eastern Cape, Mpopo Free State, Mpumalanga, and Northwest. We've also requested the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans to schedule and prepare for the presidential task team to hold engagement with the remaining provinces of Guazulu Natal, Western Cape, and Northern Cape as a matter of agency. The establishment of the presidential task team is just but one step towards reinvigorating the rendering of services to military veterans. In order to succeed with this effort, we'll need a well-established and sufficiently supportive legislative framework and properly funded department that is staffed with committed and capable employees. It is also imperative that the provincial and local spheres of government are encouraged to participate in this effort so that military veterans that we seek to emancipate are in fact protected because they are residents in the precinct of these various provinces and local authorities. In setting forth the roadmap for all parties involved in this process, it is our view that it will be necessary to enhance existing institutions and to locate the coordination and support to military veterans programs in the offices of premiers. However, this should not be read to imply that provinces will be expected to assume the responsibility of servicing military veterans on their own as this remains the statutory obligation of the Ministry of Defense and Military Veterans. This important axis that we seek to emphasize as we engage with the provincial stakeholders is the role that effective uh, coordination located closer to the provincial executive will play in hastening the deliver of services to military veterans, most of whom are in dire straits. It is this access that will enable the Department of Military Veterans to timelessly and effectively communicate and engage with military veterans in provinces. It will further ensure that appropriate services are promptly dispensed to military veterans without the necessity for military veterans to travel from far to go to Tswane for services. Additionally, we have also added the access, the role that should be played by the various government departments, including the Department of Transport, Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, among others, in facilitating the inclusion of military veterans in programs and projects that seeks to empower military veterans. With the right level of commitment, it should be possible for our government to ensure that these coordinating mechanisms 
that are required to facilitate the alleviation of the plight of the people who fought very hard, gave their lives for the attainment of our freedom to be supported. During our provincial visits, we're able to engage provincial stakeholders about the purpose of the seven work streams that we've created, namely the legislative review work stream, pension and benefits, database verification, heritage, socioeconomic support, organizational redesign, and communication work stream. Whilst the roles of the work streams may be easy to deduce from their labeling, and whilst progress of their activities is ongoing, we are happy to report that as of July 2022, the database verification, cleansing, and enhancement work stream had registered 4,016 applicants, a portion of which are still being reviewed. In addition to this, the presidential task team has directed the Minister of Defense and military veterans to consider the establishment of an appeal board for the database verification, cleansing and enhancement work stream, which will serve as a crucial mechanism to ensure that applicants who may not agree with the outcome of a verdict by the verification team are afforded an avenue for appeal. The establishment of the proposed appeal board remains necessary to foster overall perceptions of a fair verification process. It is therefore necessary to request the Minister of Defense and military veterans to expedite the establishment of this critical board. Members of this house will remember that in earlier response on the 31st of March, 2022, we provided an update on the invested changes to the Military Veterans Act, Act of 18 of 2011. The legislative review work stream has proposed a number of revisions to, the, to be considered to this act, and this will be taken to cabinet and finally to parliament. In addition, as part of our provincial engagement, we've invited military veterans to make their necessary comments uh, on the act, which in their opinion may need to be relooked. September is a heritage month. This year we would like to recognize especially the Liberation War veterans whose selfless service has immensely contributed in the defeat of apartheid and colonialism. In this respect, Heritage, memorialization, and burial support work stream has taken the lead in tracking and locating the remains of those military veterans that fell in exile for possible memorialization and repatriation. Furthermore, we're also working in cooperation with partners in the Southern African, Southern uh, Development Community Partners on a project to exhume, repatriate the remains of the fallen heroes. In the final analysis, there is no room for us to fail in our responsibility to support military veterans and their dependents.
We must continue to ensure that conducive uh, conditions for the fulfillment of our commitment to military veterans exists. We must continue to insist and ensure that all stakeholders and government entities participate in the enhancement of the lives of military veterans. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Deputy President, the first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable D.M. Mutle. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Uh, I'm surprised when you're a minister, you're able to pronounce my surname. Now you can't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Deputy President, uh, thank you for your for your response. However, I am concerned with one area where you indicate, Deputy President, that uh, uh, the ministry must facilitate the meetings for completion of uh, other visits to the outstanding provinces. Because you are the chair of the presidential task team, you account to the president. Therefore, you can't relegate that responsibility. You must take charge and ensure that you conclude these visits and ensure that you consolidate a report uh, and ensure that uh, matters that arose from those uh, engagements are attended to. Since this, this uh, uh, presidential task team is not a permanent structure, when are you going to conclude uh, these visits and by when will this uh, task team address issues that arose from those engagements. Thank you very much. I thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. To the Honorable Member, I am in charge. I am in charge of that. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a good way of, uh, of expressing ourselves and respecting the members of the uh, presidential task team. I don't instruct them, I work with them. So it's an agreed process that they will arrange these meetings. And uh, I want to assure you that uh, we share your sentiments. Um, but the number of processes as we speak, some of the issues that we're dealing with are being addressed along the way. For instance, we have approved the pension policy, which is a decision, it's a, it's a watershed decision. Now, that has been taken through the process by the Minister of Finance. It has been processed, and finally money will be made available to these uh, military veterans, those that uh, uh, were not getting this pension. So this is one achievement along the way. Uh, a number of achievements that we've made is to get the offices of premiers to affirm their role and to centralize the activities of all military veterans in their offices. And for your information, premiers were part and parcel of this uh, presidential task team. 
So as we are evolving, as we are meeting stakeholders, we are affirming, we are improving our coordination, and we're improving the services that uh, must accrue to military veterans. So at the end of the day, whatever we do around this environment of military veterans, it must happen uh, within the legislative framework. That's why the act finally must be approved so that it's stipulated to say, this must be done for military veterans, this must be done, this must be done. What we're doing now, it's a by the way. We must affirm it in terms of the law so that it's not a choice of anyone in office to do it or not to do it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. <clears throat> the honorable, the second supplementary question will be asked by the honorable M.L. Shelembe. Shelembe. The honorable, the Deputy President. Mr. Deputy President, on the 14th of May this year, when addressing the military veterans in Northwest, you said you were excited that finally all the obstacles that were preventing the department from dispensing the necessary services to the military veterans had been overcome. And the time frame for the pension rollout will be on the 1st of July this year. Deputy President, the question, has the rollout commenced? If yes, when? If not, what are the reasons for the delay? And are you prepared to make a public apology for failing to meet the due date as announced by you in public? As right now, military veterans do not have food on the plate because of your failure. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Thank Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm in a public platform now, and I'm addressing this matter. Uh, so uh, we stand by our ways that the policy, the pension policy has been approved as we've directed to all military veterans. But the availability of resources within the department on our uh, second assessment of the amount of resources available in the department warranted that I should approach the president and request that the department be given additional money for that purpose. And the president referred me to the Minister of Finance and I've tabled that matter to the Minister of Finance and the Minister of Finance has acceded to the request. So as we stand, the policy has been approved, the money has been approved. Uh, the minister will come here in the adjustment process and beyond that adjustment process, these veterans will be paid their pension. Uh, we might apologize for the delay, but the policy, we apologize. We apologize for the delay, <laughs> but uh, 
apologize for the delay, but the policy has been approved and supported. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you, Deputy President. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable H. Om Kalipi. Thank you very much. Uh, Deputy President, there was a study done by Atlantic Philanthropists in 2006, which showed that 73% of our liberation military veterans believe that the NC after 1994 have forgotten about them. And 84% believed that the compensation they received was not sufficient and that the ruling party neglected them. Today, Deputy President, in 2022, the government has not resolved the concerns that military veterans have. And I was just listening to you telling us that you have a plan to go to all provinces. But the fact of the matter, you have not addressed their matters. And we, we, we stay with them in townships. We see them. They eat in a dustbin. So why is that apartheid soldiers who killed our people are far better taken care of than those who fought for our liberation? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member, the Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable Member, I share your concerns, but you'll remember that it is this ANC government that has created a department. The, through an act of parliament, a department called the Department of Military Veterans, and with clear indications of what is due for military veterans. It has happened over years, but military veterans are not satisfied. As we speak, they do receive educational benefits for their dependents, but after a long struggle, and some are not receiving, um, they do get medical support, some don't get medical support. Some have received houses. Some have not received houses. So that is why the president said, go in there and find out how best we can streamline the services that are delivered to these military veterans and ensure that all blockages are unblocked. I must, however, take this opportunity and thank provinces. Provinces took it upon themselves. I remember also as a, as a premier of a province, I took it upon myself to build houses for military veterans. So premiers are doing the very same thing as we speak. They are building houses for military veterans. I want to say thank you to all our premiers. But we are doing, we are doing our best to streamline the rendering of these services to our military veterans. This time, we need to get the Department of Military Veterans to be equal to the task. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Deputy President. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable R.N. Tadekul. Thank you, uh, Speaker. Mr. President, in May this year, you stated that a government has attempted to build housing in various areas across our country to accommodate our military veterans. 
in your statement, you claimed that uh, housing has been uh, claimed by, quote, open quote, who never fought uh, for this country's freedom under the pretext of being military veterans. Now that you are aware, or a uh, uh, deputy president, what is your government going to do in some areas where these military, military veterans have resorted to occupy housing projects not meant for them? How is your government going to uh, solve this challenge? I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member, the Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. I have not heard about this problem of military veterans intruding, enforcing themselves in houses that don't belong to them. But instead, I've heard of a situation where people will come forward and claim to be military veterans and get houses from departments. I've never heard of a situation where military veterans have occupied houses, illegally so. Uh, as government, we continue the process of building houses. What we have normalized is that in a province like Free State, they are building 80 square meters. In a province like Northwest, they are building 60 square meters. In a province like uh, the uh, Eastern Cape, they are building 50. Western Cape, zero. Yes. Now, we are going to normalize, we're going to normalize the square meters that it's that is uh, suitable for the military veterans of course we are not going to do it retrospectively those that have received bigger houses that have received smaller houses will just let the sleeping dogs lie and proceed now going forward we are going to ensure that we standardize these operations we worried though that there are military veterans that are claiming to be military veterans, which are not military veterans. And that's the problem. Our verification committee is battling with this. That is why we've allowed them, those that have not been allowed, those that have not been approved, we said if they've got qualms about it, let them. Uh, appeal to the appeals board. Now, we have given them an avenue to appeal. But according to the verification committee, they are not military veterans. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. This brings us to the last question for the day, and it has been asked by the Honorable S. Kwakube to the Deputy President. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable. Speaker, as the leader of government business in this parliament, we have previously affirmed the centrality of this institution in ensuring that all of us as the executive are accountable to this house. In this regard, 
We have always encouraged members of the executive to prioritize the implementation of findings and recommendations of judicial commissions of inquiry and those of state institutions supporting constitutional democracy. Furthermore, section 92, section two and three of the constitution stipulates that members of cabinet are accountable collectively and individually to parliament for the exercise of their powers and the performance of their functions. Therefore, members of the executive have a constitutional obligation to avail themselves to assist the National Assembly in its work of processing the findings of the report of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture. With regards to enforcing sanctions imposed by the National Assembly on members of the Executive Council, the Deputy President does not have the constitutional powers to impose any sanction to members of the Executive, but the President does. Notwithstanding this, the National Assembly can be assured of the full commitment of the Executive under the leadership of the President in the processing of the findings of the State Capture Commission. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable S. Wahube. Uh, thank you very much, Deputy President. And um, I uh, I take note of your uh, of of your of your assertion that uh, it is not up to you to enforce uh, or at least discipline members of cabinet. Uh, in your role as the leader of government business, you have seemingly been committed to working with Parliament uh, to ensure greater synergy between the legislature and the executive, especially over issues of accountability, as you've just said. While, of course, we can't praise a fish for swimming or a deputy president from doing his work, we do note the commitment you've made in this house and today on numerous occasions about government being amenable to scrutiny, especially for those who are implicated in the grand theft of public money. However, deputy president, I'm quite concerned. It seems as though there's now some uncertainty about the status of the Zondo Commission report and its findings. The president asserts that none of the findings of this judicial commission are in fact binding for government, a sentiment which seems to have extended to parliament judging by the presiding officer's reluctance to act speedily against those who have been implicated in the report. Of course, this is concerning considering the fact that the work of this commission has spanned over years and over 1 billion rand has been spent of public money. Do you agree with the president that the commission's findings are not binding and that they simply could be ignored. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Honorable Member, for the question. I must congratulate you for your new assignment. Uh, congratulations. Uh, I can see that uh, women are being affirmed and being recognized even this side, which is a good thing, <laughs> which is a good thing. Well, the president will come to the house and present uh, a report 
on how he's going to handle the recommendations of uh, the commission. It's in that space and that time when the president will explain it himself to say, with regards to this recommendation, I don't think uh, I'm obliged to respond and give reasons. Of course, there are certain recommendations that are about the National Assembly itself, but yourself. You, you must also explain yourself how you want to deal with this, <laughs> these recommendations. So all of us, one day, we are going to explain ourselves. And that time will come. It's not only for the president to explain himself, we must also explain ourselves how best we are going to handle this recommendation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable RMM Lisuma. Special Investigation Unit, which is SIU, Ukulanda, Nokukokalela, is the Malinezindo, Umundu Kumbe is in Kampani, is Tindekayo, Nokwenza, the State Capture Report, Zakuneta, Galupushobo, or how are they going to be justified? The Tinizin was a Kosegalam Gamil in Galondo, Gokuba Kukona Aba Abati is one billion that was spent vis a vis how much we anticipate to collect for those uh, whom have been found to have their cookies in the jar. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. I think uh, we all agree as a country that uh, the amount of money spent uh, in funding the work of the commission is money well spent. It's necessary to look at the bad side of ourselves and deal with those issues that are raised in the, in the report. We may not like these issues and these recommendations, but it's necessary. This is a past that it's meant to teach us how best we must navigate the future. Now, with regards to the efforts of our institutions in trying to get money that has been stolen, every cent that is uh, retrieved from those people that have stolen, it should be celebrated. It's an achievement. What is important is not the money, but it is the principle that you are not going to steal from the state. If you steal, we are going to request you to pay back. So that in principle is very important. So we may not count this in monetary terms, in value terms, but in a democracy, 
it's very important to establish that principle and that principle becomes part and parcel of our life as a democracy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable N.F. Shibambu. Uh, speaker, I will take it. Thank you oh. very much, Speaker. Uh, Deputy President, the Chief Justice has applied to the court to make corrections in aspect of the report of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegation of state capture. Many are trying to forget that it was the EFF that fought for the commission to be established and to exist in the first place. We went to the constitutional court when it was not fashionable to do so. However, given the matter in which the reports were handled with an element of politicization, are we not risking the prospect of the whole commission's work being undermined if it is rushed to serve some political groups that are now using state capture as a weapon to fight their own political fictional battles? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Uh, thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable Speaker, I don't think so. Uh, the findings of the commissions have been made public to all of us to see them, to know them. And the implementation of these findings is also going to be made public. There's nothing that we're going to hide here. Now, and I'm sure, I'm confident that in the application of this, uh, the remedial actions, we are not going to pursue individuals because of their color or gender or creed. We are going to follow the law. And I trust that our institutions are so mature that they will not deviate from those principles. As to the application by the Chief Justice, I am not aware of the content of that application, so I can't comment and I can't say what will be the effect of that application vis-a-vis -vis the report. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable F.J. Mulder. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Speaker, it is common knowledge that gated deployment has no place in our constitutional system. And sorry, honorable member, will you please press your mic? Was pressed. Okay. Was pressed. Okay. Thank you, honorable speaker. I'm gonna start again. Honorable speaker. It is common knowledge that cadre deployment has no place in our constitutional system and is a counter-constitutional abomination that must be abandoned if South Africa is to build a developmentally focused growth enabling environment. Although the Honorable Deputy President has confirmed the, uh, uh, the, the willing power of, of, of government and commitment, the NC government seems to be reluctant to act swiftly to re eradicate state capture up till now. Honorable Speaker, could the Honorable Deputy President 
inform the House if a change in behavior is still possible or has the radical economic transformation factor within the governing party lame government to such an extent that no real progress can be made? Thank you, Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. The issue of uh, CADA deployment, it's a policy of uh, a certain organization, and I'm not, <laughs> not uh, uh, at liberty to discuss a policy of uh, an organization. Uh, we'll appreciate that. But for your information, some, someone took that organization to court on that policy. So it makes things worse. Uh, so let's leave it. Let's let the sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm happy that you are asking this question to this uh, organizational, to this organization, but we are not told what we are not, what you are doing in your own small corners uh, yourself. Uh, there's something that you are doing. Uh, in your small corners, we see people assuming responsibilities. Uh, I don't think they are just coming from the skies. They were, <laughs> some, something happened. <laughs> something happened. I think some people were deployed even here. So we may want to know <laughs> that policy, how you, how you do it. But it's, maybe it's not the best platform to ask one another about our CADA deployment policy, but I know that you do practice. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. Order, Honorable Members, that concludes questions to the Deputy President. I thank the Honorable Deputy President. Long live the Deputy President. That concludes the business of the day and the House is adjourned. Thank you.